you guys smell that? That's a love in the air, baby. <laughs> Welcome to another episode of She's Mental with your very, very mental Valentine, Finlay Hewlett. Oh, the sun is shining, the birds are singing, or at least I hope they are when you're listening to this. Whether you're alone today or with friends or you're all loved up, I hope you're having a very wonderful Monday. And a big point of today's podcast is that self-love and platonic love are just as important, if not more so, than romantic love. I know, shock horror. How dare you love yourself or love your friends. But, you know, if all else fails, if today's really getting you down, if you're going through a breakup or going through something like shitty or just not really feeling it, if you're just a bit of a Valentine's Day Grinch, chocolate goes on sale the day after Valentine's Day. So tomorrow, go into your local supermarket, stock up and just eat it all away. Don't do that. But but I'm saying you just got to capitalize on these things while they're there. Also, I really like sunflowers, in case any of you were wondering. I really, really like sunflowers. So, you know, just no reason that I drop that in there. Just I like sunflowers. Oh, if only, if only someone, someone would just, you know, sweep me off my feet with sunflowers. Anyway, I digress. <laughs> Back onto today's topic. So we're going to be talking about two things today. First of all, we're going to be talking about the history of platonic love. And I know for me, a big focus of my last couple of months has been on my friends after enduring a pretty, pretty hard breakup myself. Um, And of course, like we're always taught, you know, in movies and media and everything that, you know, romantic love is, you know, the be all and end all. But there is nothing purer and more enduring and more fulfilling than beautiful platonic relationships and beautiful friendships and the beautiful thing about my friend group is that I have so many different people that bring out all different parts of me and different facets of me and it's amazing because I'm sure I do the same for them I'm sure that I fulfill different needs of theirs and there's no pressure to have to fulfill one person's needs entirely which is often the case in romantic relationships there's this sort of societal pressure that this one person is the one and that they have to fulfill all of your needs and fulfill everything which is an entirely false narrative and if that's if you're thinking that way it often leads to quite unhealthy relationships but my friendships are so wholesome and pure and beautiful and I'm just wanted to say thank you to all my beautiful friends, you know who you are, for helping me get to where I am today and just supporting me and being by my side through the good, the bad, the ugly. Platonic love is seriously, seriously underrated and so I wanted to go into the history of it. So the term platonic comes from the Greek philosopher Plato and He was known for examining the power of platonic love in contrast with more carnal forms of love, especially in his text, The Symposium. And 
these two extremes of love, both the more carnal and both the, and the platonic as well, they often played out in sort of Grecian tragedies and comedies within the theatre scene back then. And throughout Plato's analysis of this in his text, such as the Symposium, there's sort of a classification of seven categories of classical love that have since been redefined over the years. But for funsies, we're going to have a little read of them. So first off, we have Eros, which is sexual or passionate love, like kind of the modern perspective of a romantic love that's sort of associated with sex. And then we have Philia, which is sort of like a friendship kind of love or goodwill, which is like mutually beneficial to both parties and it's like a companionship and with someone you rely upon or trust very deeply. Then we have storge, which is like a parent-child love. We have agape, which is like a universal love, like a love for, I guess, whatever you see as God or if you believe in a higher power or if you believe in nature or a love for strangers. It's kind of like an all-encompassing universal love. Then we have ludus, which is like a playful, uncommitted, nonchalant love, which is just fun short-term, fleeting, ephemeral, just a lot of fun. Then we have pragma, which is love founded on like practicalities, needing to get things done for long-term interest, not necessarily a particularly passionate love, but one that is for practical reasons. And then last but not least, we have philautia, which is self-love, which can be healthy and unhealthy if it leads to the point of hubris and back then it was seen as unhealthy if you placed yourself like above the gods if you were almost narcissistic in a way but I guess if we're talking about if we're comparing the classical definition to modern times it's more just about self-love and healthy self-love and self-esteem and building confidence now these definitions these classical definitions of love aren't necessarily mutually exclusive like they blended and it was a lot more complicated and nuanced than just these seven categories seem and as time sort of went on in the middle ages Plato's philosophy was carried on and it became increasingly popular and that sort of lead, leads us into today and like the modern age where more modern scholars such as Todd Reeser, they actually study the meaning of platonic love and how that's transformed during the Renaissance. And these sort of seven classical definitions have kind of transformed and evolved into this one scope, which has given us the modern concept of non-sexual love. And what Plato originally defined platonic love as... Whilst he had his seven definitions, he also had something underpinning it all, which was that love is an idea of good that lies at the root of all virtue and truth and honesty. And I find that particularly beautiful because as I've grown up, I've discovered that clear is kind and unclear is unkind. I'm very much an honesty is the best kind of policy person and... It's kind of beautiful that that's reflected in Plato's sort of theories on love and platonic love because I think it takes more courage to be honest with the people you care about and it takes takes more of you 
to be clear and to be good and to set your boundaries and to express your needs and your feelings. And so, I don't know. I just think that's really beautiful and I wanted to share that with you all. And on another note as well, I had a really wonderful conversation in therapy today with my psychotherapist. And we were actually talking about attachment styles and that kind of thing, given the nature of today's episode and everything. And she turns to me and says, more and more people need to love more and more without being ashamed. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's, ex- I was like, fuck yeah, that's exactly right. I sort of sat there and let it sink in. And then she continued and she said, love is tied like intrinsically within our brains to sex, but that definitely isn't always the case we're so ashamed of having such intimate platonic relationships or opening ourselves up in such a raw and vulnerable way because our media really tells us that that's reserved for romantic love and in all truthfulness there are so many different forms of intimacy that I think it's so limiting to just project that onto a romantic model. I know friends who have understood me more intimately and beautifully than any romantic partner I've had. And that's not to say that that, that's a discredit to my romantic partners in past. That's just to say that different people bring out different parts of ourselves. And you don't have to understand someone fully to get along with them or to have a romantic connection with them. There's so many different forms and ways that we as humans can connect. And so I just think that's really important to understand. And on my last note, before we move into attachment styles, I would much rather be single and on my own and have the right people in my life not necessarily romantically but be able to invest my time and energy into people who I genuinely connect with than sink all of my time into something romantic that doesn't fulfill me isn't compatible with my needs and wants and future visions and inevitably leaves me more lonely than if I were to be single and I think that's so important so many of us hang on for hanging on sake because we're taught to idealize romantic love and to put it on a pedestal above everything when in reality our hands burn more on the rope if we hang on than if we let go so I think that's that's been my biggest lesson recently really really important I listen to that again if you have to if you're in a toxic relationship or situationship and you just feel like you needed to hear that or there's a little alarm bell going off in there listen to it again listen to it again I'm just saying anyway on to attachment styles I just wanted to start off with a little disclaimer though. I'm focusing on one particular theorem of attachment that is quite popular in pop culture. This does not account 
for everything, for all there is to attachment as it is such a complex and convoluted topic with so much nuance and so many gray areas. So just bear in mind, today I'm going to be talking about John Bowlby's theory of attachment. And again, on another note, as I was talking to my psychotherapist, she brought up a point that I thought was really important to mention here. The intensity of our attachments is to, to other people is incredibly variant on how vulnerable we are with our respective partners and the level of safety we feel in relationships. So regardless of your particular attachment style, your intensity of relationships will have many different factors. And these factors will also be influenced by your environment, um, your mental health, so on so forth. For example, people with borderline personality disorder or people like me with avoidant personality disorder and other things may experience or may be more predisposed to certain types of attachment than others. Same with people who have particular traumas or relational traumas or that kind of thing. It all plays into each other and our attachment style is really just an amalgamation of our life experiences, what we've learnt from our parents and this kind of thing, all sort of concentrated. So, now for a brief little history on attachment theory according to John Bowlby. So, John Bowlby was a British lad born in the 1900s, the very, very early 1900s, and he was a developmental psychiatrist and psychoanalyst. He's known for his interest in child development and his pioneering work in attachment theory as we know it today. Now, in the 1950s, he came across a psychologist and researcher, Mary Ainsworth, Now, Mary was an American-Canadian researcher with an interest in child psychology and child development, and she had seen Bowlby's earlier work in 1949 on maternal deprivation and the effects of post-war Europe on the mental health of homeless children. Um, Bowlby had been commissioned to write an article on this for the World Health Organization, and so between that and Bowlby's sort of research on the effects of having an absent mother and the effects on attachment that had and how that can cause things that would commonly be known now as oppositional defiant disorder and sort of antisocial disorders within children. He'd done a lot of research on that and a lot of other things that sort of aligned with Mary's interests and her sort of research and work. So they worked together on the development of attachment theory in the 1950s, 1960s. However, attachment theory itself was mainly reserved for children and attachment to parental figures. As we know, as we commonly see in pop culture, everything that the collective kind of knows about attachment is to do with, oh, so I went through this with my parents. Say my mother was incredibly overbearing and I, but at the same time I had to walk on eggshells around her because I didn't know how she felt about whatever. Then when you're around your partner, you feel 
intensely worried or anxious when they are upset and you take it personally because you think oh well I have to manage their emotional response because I had to walk on eggshells around my mother when I was a kid you don't necessarily make a conscious connection between the two but you can see how your relationship with your mother or your parents or whatever can play out in relational dynamics and so that's where society kind of recognizes attachment theory but attachment theory wasn't actually extended to adults and observed as playing out in adult romantic relationships until the late 80s and this was by Cindy Hazan and Philip Shaver. Now these two came up with the four attachment styles we know today. So we have secure attachment, avoidant attachment, anxious attachment and disorganized attachment. So if a child has been able to consistently rely on their parental figures to fulfill their needs when they were growing up, they're more likely to develop a secure attachment where relationships are like a safe space to feel whatever you're feeling, express themselves, and you feel validated, you feel reassured. And with your parents, they were emotionally available to you. They, you felt understood, you felt valued, and you felt comforted as a child when you needed it. Now, with the three other insecure attachments, it means that you had somewhat of a strained bond with your caregivers and you have kind of learned as you grew up that you probably weren't able to rely on others either partially or fully for their care and support towards you. And just a quick note, you can actually heal your attachment style through therapy, things such as DBT, Um, working with a psychotherapist who is actively trained in attachment theories to help you kind of unpack why you believe what you believe in and why you act the way you act. So if you resonate with a particular insecure attachment style that I'm about to talk about here, please don't panic. If you would like to change it or if you feel it's detrimental, there's always a way to seek help and talk to someone to help you out and get you to where you want to be. So attachment is defined by your ability to build and maintain healthy and long-term relationships within your life, whether that is in a romantic sense. And we're going to be talking about romance here because that's sort of where a lot of attachment theory comes from, but it also can apply to your platonic relationships and your friendships as well. So just to reiterate on secure attachment, um, If you are securely attached, you tend to trust your partner's intentions and jealousy is not really an issue. You're sort of not really worried about them cheating or that kind of thing unless you're given due reason to. Um, You can kind of self-soothe your own emotions and you can seek emotional support if you need to. It's not really a big deal. You're a clear communicator. You've got a healthy self-esteem. You're comfortable being alone and you're also comfortable in close relationships. You feel like you can open up and you can trust other people. You're quite self-reflective and you're good at managing and resolving conflict well. And just a little cheeky note about conflict that I want to talk about because I really love this. It's not if you fight that predicts relational success. It's how you fight. So the Gottman Institute, through research, has actually discovered that couples who bicker once a week but are able to have healthy conversations about their thoughts have significantly higher relational success than couples who don't fight at all and are avoidant of their struggles and sort of bury it under the surface because it leads to resentment so fun fact just letting you know if you fight it's not the be all and end all it's just how you fight just 
get good at conflict resolution and get good at it being you and them against the problem and not you against your partner. Okay, moving along now, we're on to avoidant attachment. So for people who are avoidantly attached, it's like a consistent pattern of avoiding intimacy in a myriad of ways, whether that be emotional, sexual, just generally shying away from intimacy. And often these people are very fiercely independent, like strongly attached to their own privacy and their own alone time and whilst that's not necessarily a bad thing avoidance do it to excess when they experience any sort of closeness emotionally they actually feel rather threatened by emotional closeness with people and they can get quite dismissive of others who attempt this and they cannot or they won't express their feelings they they feel really uncomfortable doing so And they like to spend more time alone than with others, generally, and they can have difficulty trusting others. Now, the way this kind of manifests in their relationships is that they hold their partners at arm's length. They kind of push people away before they can get too close. And so another fun fact from, again, the Gottman Institute, I would recommend checking them out because they have a lot of really interesting research and things on relationships and a lot of like that they've done a lot of studies and there's a lot of science behind it so if you'd like to like understand the science behind attachment theory and that kind of thing more please go check them out it's amazing but the Gottman Institute talk about the four horsemen of the apocalypse when it comes to relationships and those four horsemen are indicators of relational breakdowns and one of them is known as stonewalling so that's not talking about your problems, the kind of chronic avoidance and lack of intimacy, lack of opening up and conveying emotion. And that's what avoidance are best at. Stonewalling is their shit. So that tends to be something that avoidance fall upon because they either don't know how to talk about it, they don't want to talk about it, it makes them uncomfortable, whatever issues they're having or whatever they're feeling within a relationship with someone. And it doesn't necessarily mean they don't want to connect, but it's just so uncomfortable for them or triggers something within them that they're just like, you know what, no, it's just easier to push you away before I get hurt. Now, avoidance often had parents who were either emotionally absent or physically absent. And so they didn't have anyone really to respond to their emotional needs growing up, like the way they really needed. So they have learned to self-soothe their own emotions and kind of manage their own shit like their whole lives for the most part in regards to their parents. So this is why they're quite closed off because it's like, well, if I've been independent this long, if I've done this for myself this long, then, well, whatever. Like, I'm going to keep on doing it because other people won't do it as well as I can because my parents didn't and obviously this isn't like a conscious thought process but it's very on the subconscious level and following on from that we have anxious attachment so people who are anxiously attached tend to depend on their partner for validation for emotional regulation they're very codependent on others in their lives and can have the reputation of, I'm saying this in quotation marks, clingy. 
um, they're deeply afraid of being rejected and abandoned and they have a really low self-esteem. They struggle believing that they're worthy of love. And they're highly sensitive to criticism, whether that's real criticism or whatever they perceive to be criticism. They have like a difficulty being alone with themselves and they need a lot of approval from others and they often don't trust their partners. They might have issues with jealousy or trust and they often blame themselves for any challenges or difficulties within the relationship, whether they're caused by them or not. And all these behaviours are due to their parents not really being attuned to their needs and they're being very inconsistent in their parenting. People who are anxiously attached often have had parents who are easily overwhelmed, um, made the individual responsible for their own feelings, otherwise known as parentifying their child. And their parents may have alternated between being helicopter parents and being almost overbearing and smothering to being completely indifferent. So there was a lot of confusion uh, about how to go about managing their parents' feelings because as a child you're not you're not meant to manage your parents feelings but people who are anxiously attached may have been more prone to having to do that and so as a result in their adult relationships they feel like they are responsible for everything that their partner feels they feel that if they just do this or do that or be more like this their partner will react in an ideal way and so it leads to them taking things often very personally when it isn't necessarily personal And last but not least, disorganized attachment. So these ones are the real kicker. So people who have have a disorganized attachment style exhibit signs of both avoidant and anxious styles. They also have a distinct inability to regulate their own emotions when it comes to their relationships. And they often display really contradictory behaviors because they're caught in this dichotomy of craving intimacy and craving love and seeking that but also shying away from it and pushing it away because they can handle being close to people but they're also so terrified of rejection and abandonment that they can also fall into the habits of pushing people away that avoidance would but then they can also cling like someone who is anxiously attached would and often people with this attachment style have experienced childhood neglect childhood trauma and abuse a lot of kind of traumatic things that were out of their or their caregivers control a lot of the time and so it's led them to have a very convoluted and a very contradictory view on relationships and so often they sort of perceive their partners as unpredictable when that is actually their sort of behavior and so there's this battle internally between the individual's need for security and then also their fears and anxieties and insecurities so it's a real vicious cycle and often people like me with mood disorders and personality disorders can often be more prone to dealing with this attachment often but not always but this tends to be more prevalent in people who struggle with mental health disorders as to the complexity of it. So the main takeaway I want you to get from learning about these attachment styles is that knowledge is power and the more you know about yourself and your loved ones, the more you can kind of focus on strengthening your connections with yourself, with others, and you can understand how you view the world. 
it is a brilliant vessel for self-reflection, but do bear in mind it's not the be-all and end-all. It doesn't mean your relationships are doomed if you're a certain attachment style. It doesn't mean that you can't focus on healing yourself. It doesn't mean you have to always exist within this box. It's just something like a theory observing patterns that have existed for a lot of people in their childhoods and that have continued on into their adulthood. I personally have been healing my own attachment struggles with a lot of therapy. I've kind of struggled with the disorganized style, as I sort of mentioned, and learning to be comfortable both within my own company and by myself, and also comparing that with being comfortable with opening up to those who matter has been one of probably the hardest but most rewarding parts of my mental health journey and one of the most fruitful parts. I've seen a massive improvement in how I view my relationships and friendships and how I can maintain them and how my friend groups have become more stable and solid as I've grown and learned more about this part of myself. Um, Therapy is such a massive, massive part of that. I can't stress it enough. And I just want to normalize accessing it for relationship struggles because personally, that is something I haven't done before, but I honestly wish I did. Um, it's important for like within your own attachment style like and doing your own work on yourself and also in conjunction with your partner if you're both comfortable such as like couples counseling like you're not weak or silly or any less for taking steps to heal and it doesn't invalidate your relationship nor does it mean things won't get better if you're at the point of seeking therapy together it's it's a vital preventative tool that I encourage literally everyone to seek out where they can we need to normalize therapy full stop but I really want to speak to relationships and relationship counseling for this episode because I think there's such a stigma around it and such a heavy cloud like you sort of hear oh couples couples therapy oh god people sort of associate it with with this doom or this oh well this is inevitable like we're going to break up eventually anyway but as I said before it's not how like it's not necessarily if you fight it's how you fight or how you manage conflict and how you discuss things and how you compromise or come to resolutions and again therapy helps you do that with interpersonal relationships with your friends with anyone in your life so if you're actually involving the if you have the opportunity to involve the person in the process if they if you are committed to each other to working through something that's incredibly strong within itself and shows that in fact you want to make it work so let's let's abolish that stigma really want to hit that home I love how I'm talking about this, like couples counselling and like marriage therapy and all this, and I'm like 20. (laughs) The irony of it. But I digress. I still stick by my point. (laughs) And I guess that's all we've got time for today for this episode of She's Mental. Again, I hope you have a very mental Valentine. I've been very happy to be your very mental Valentine. And I will see you next episode. Take care, lovely people.